morning, everyone. Uh, how, many, how many of you were here a few weeks ago whenever uh, Joel Marcus was with us? How many of you were here that morning? Okay, great. Joel serves with uh, Baptist Missions. He's church planting in Bell Turbot, County Cavan, along with his wife, Katia, and his two little boys, uh, Timothy and Benjamin. And, and based on Acts 11, Joel shared a couple of key thoughts about how the church in Ireland is going to grow and about how lives are going to be changed by the gospel. I, I don't know if you remember the kind of two things he shared with us. They were, they, they were really good. Here they are, maybe not word for word, but here's what he said. It will be through, oh, sorry, Paul, haven't turned it on. It will be through ordinary people unleashing the word of God and it will be through the word of God being unleashed in the lives of ordinary people. I wonder, do you believe that? I wonder, do you believe that? Well, this morning as we uh, continue our Game of Thrones series in 1 Kings, and as we reach chapter 20, which is almost the end of season one, season two of Game of Thrones is coming, uh, the importance the importance of the inescapable and unleashed word of God in people's lives and how people relate to that and respond to it and react to that. That is what sits right at the center of what happens next in this epic story. And so the phrase, this is what the Lord says. That's a phrase that is going to appear a few times in 1 Kings chapter 20. And for those who've been following this series, you'll be aware that this phrase or a kind of variation of it, a phrase like the Lord says, or then the word of the Lord came, or by the word of the Lord, that kind of phrase, that kind of idea that this is what the Lord says, that is a constant feature and a powerful presence and a core influencing aspect in the lives of numerous people in this great story. You see, God's word speaks. Do you believe that? God's word alters, God's word challenges, it judges, it rearranges, it directs and redirects, it dictates situations and events and individual stories, it dictates corporate experiences, and it even dictates and determines the trajectory of history itself because God's word is a lamp and a light that illuminates and guides. It is a scalpel or a double-edged sword that heals and exposes. It is fire that burns and purifies. It is a hammer. These are all different ways that God's word describes itself. God's word is a hammer that constructs and deconstructs us. It's a sword that defends and attacks. It's a mirror that reveals and enlightens. And it's daily bread that should be feeding us and sustaining us, restoring us and energizing us. And if nothing else this morning, please remember once again about the need to and the importance of continually unleashing and engaging with the word of God in our lives. Because you know what? Our spiritual well-being depends on it. Your spiritual well-being depends 
on the word of God being unleashed in your life. Because as God's word itself says, we only truly live as we consume every single word that comes from the mouth of God. We cannot live on bread alone. We can actually only live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's the first question this morning. What's your intake of God's word been like this past week? As you, as you have consumed, what's it been like? This is what the Lord says. Appears in our text today. This is still what the Lord says and keeps saying. It still says. And the issue is, as it was in 1 Kings 20, am I listening? Am I actually paying attention to what the Lord is saying to us today? If you have a Bible, please do turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. Now, this is a long chapter. It's got 43 verses. Uh, so we need to kind of get stuck into it. And I just want to allow the story to speak for itself. By the way, those who've been following this series, you know that the key character in the last few weeks has been Elijah. Elijah doesn't feature at all in this episode. Not at all. So verse one, uh, we're gonna read it in chunks, so we'll just stay seated this morning, is that okay? Here, here is the first four verses, it's on the screen. But if you do have a copy of God's word handy, it would be really helpful this morning. So here we go. Now, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army. And accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots, he went up and besieged Samaria. Now remember, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, who is the current king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is what Ben-Hadab's messenger said. Your silver and gold are mine, Ahab, and the best of your wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered, just as you say, my lord and king, I and all I have is yours. So, an enemy of Israel, and this is, this is a new character in the story, Ben-Hadad, him and 32 other unnamed kings launch an attack on Israel's capital city, Samaria. And then they send a message to Ahab saying, listen, Ahab, all your silver, all your gold, the best of your wives, the best of your kids are going to be taken. And Ahab's response is fascinating. And it's defeatist. And it's tragic. He's clearly intimidated and scared. And so he effectively says, okay, whatever you say. Now I'm left wondering, how did he decide who were his best wives and best kids? Right? How did he decide who to give away. Anyway, Ben-Hadad decides, even though King Ahab has said, okay, whatever you say, Ben-Hadad decides to turn the screw a little tighter. And so he forwards another message. And this time he says, listen, this time tomorrow, whole different thing from what we usually do here, this time tomorrow, I am gonna send a delegation to your palace, Ahab, and to the houses of all your officials, this is verses five and six, by the way, not on the screen, so that's why I'm saying if you can be following. I'm gonna send a delegation this time tomorrow to your palace, to the houses of all your officials, and I'm gonna seize everything 
you have. Everything you value, not just the best stuff, everything. Well, this is starting to get serious now. So Ahab decides to consult some other people. And so he turns to the elders of the land for advice. And here's what they say. Look at verse 8. Don't listen to him, Ahab. Don't listen to Ben-Adab, Adad. And don't agree to his demands. So Ahab sends word back to his enemy. You see your first demand for silver, gold, and my favorite wives and kids? That's doable. See your second demand for everything I value? Sorry, no can do. Well, when Ben Haddad hears this, he is not impressed. And here's what he says. Verse 10. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. In other words, Ahab, I am going to reduce your capital city to dust. And so many people are going to come with me, and so many people are going to go come against you, that there won't be enough dust for everyone to take a handful. We are going to completely obliterate you. Well, Ahab, ball in your court, he comes back at the enemy in this escalating war of words. Look at verse 11. The king of Israel, Ahab, answered, tell him, so send a message back to my enemy, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Like, what does that mean? Seriously. <laughs> well, apparently that is fighting talk in that culture and context. And what he was really saying is this, Ben-Adad, it's easier to start a fight than to end it, so bring it on. Well, still with me? When Ben-Hadad hears this, and by the way, it says in the, in, in the text that at this stage, him and his 32 kings are having a drink in their tents, kicking back. But whenever word comes to them as they're having a drink, he immediately issues orders to prepare for the all-out attack. It's time to reduce Samaria to dust. Talking is over. So this is going to be interesting. So then something incredible happens. Look at verse 13, which is so surprising and shocking and exciting at so many levels, because here is what we read in verse 13 on the screen. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, get this, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army that's bearing down on you? King Adad, 32 other kings, huge army. Do you see them? I'm going to give them into your hands today. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, if you've got a Bible in front of you, look up at verses 2 and 5. Because twice so far in this story we read, this is what Ben-Hadad says. Now, this is what the Lord says. Which, whatever way you look at it, means this is going to be a different word. This is going to be a better word. And what is that word? God shares a promise with a purpose. That's, what, that's what's there on the screen. A promise with a purpose. The promise is mind-blowing. 
Because despite the fact that Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings and their vast army are bearing down on Ahab and Samaria, somehow, and God knows how, Ahab is going to win despite the overwhelming odds. Although, as we already know from 1 Kings 18 and what happened on Mount Carmel, whenever there were 850 prophets versus one Elijah, we know that God specializes in outrageous odds. Still, the promise here that this army that is bearing down on you, I'm going to give them to you. That's an astonishing promise from God. But what is far more astounding is why. Why? Why is Ahab of all people receiving this promise? Like Ahab is a right royal disaster. Ahab, as we know, he is the worst, wickedest king Israel has ever had. In fact, let me just quote what the scriptures say about Ahab. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. Not only that, he did more to arouse the anger of God than any king ever had. Surely Ahab deserves nothing from God let alone a massive against all odds victory. Surely Ben-Hadad's imminent attack on Ahab is simply and understandably part of God's judgment on this wicked king of Israel. Like, if that is what happened, if Ben-Hadad did wipe out Ahab and all Israel at that time, fair enough. They had completely turned their back on God. They deserved nothing. Ahab never turns to God for help in this story. Ahab never goes looking for a prophet of the Lord to discover a word from the Lord. In fact, Ahab supported his wife Jezebel in trying to eradicate all the prophets from the land. So why is he receiving a promise? Why is he receiving these amazing words from the Lord? Well, the only answer, the only answer I can come up with is this, grace. Here is infinite mercy and grace. Because you see, this sudden turn of events, it's all God's initiative. A prophet is sent by God to Ahab. God comes near to him. Ahab doesn't go anywhere near God. God comes near to Ahab. And he didn't deserve it. Ahab had done nothing to warrant this. In fact, the complete opposite. He had done everything to deserve nothing. But then that is grace receiving what not one single one of us deserves. That's grace. But look at why he received the promise. Because this is, this is so important. There was a purpose. And it was this. It's so that you will know, Ahab, that I am the Lord. And that you there, by the way, is singular. It's just for you, Ahab. It's so that you will know that I am the Lord. And what we discover here is that, that here is God in his lavish grace and mercy working in the life of Ahab to bring him to a personal knowledge of God. Then you will know, Ahab, that I am the Lord. And here is the thing that is and always has been God's desire. 
That, that is and always has been God's desire to be known. God wants you and I to know him. I mean, if you go right back to Egypt, the reason that God rescued and redeemed his people from slavery was so that they and Pharaoh and the Egyptians and indeed the whole world, the whole point of it all, the whole point of redemption and the exodus, and these are in the words of God himself, the whole point was so that you would know that I am the Lord. So let me just give you a few examples of that. Exodus 6, I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Exodus 7, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand. This was the purpose of it. This was why God redeemed his people. Chapter nine of Exodus, this is what the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord when I strike the, the nail and it turns to blood. To know God. That is the goal. It always has been, it always is. And in 1 Kings chapter 20, the word of the Lord comes to Ahab with exactly the same purpose because God doesn't change. And so he just keeps coming to us. And he takes the initiative. He just keeps coming to us and saying, listen, I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am. And that is why we need to be unleashing this. This is why God's word is so important and needs to be read and heard and studied and consumed so that we would know God. So that we would know God. God has revealed himself to us in and through his word. And the fact that God has given us his word, the fact that God does still speak, he is still reaching out to us, that he still wants to be known even though not one of us deserve it, that is all grace. And Ahab felt the full force of it in 1 Kings 20. But here's the issue. How is he gonna respond? Was he prepared to listen to this gracious God from out of the blue? Well, let's read on. Verse 14, we discover Ahab has got a couple of questions, which I suppose is fair enough, because who doesn't have questions after you read God's word? Who doesn't? And here are Ahab's two questions. He says, okay, I hear what you've said. You're gonna give me this vast army today? So who exactly is gonna do this? And who's going to kick it all off? Those were his two questions. Who's going to start this? Well, the answer comes back to him. Your junior officials will do this. There's 232 of them there, the ones that are going to do it. And do you know who's going to start it, Ahab? You are. And then what we read is that the 232 officials do do it. And he does start it. And so it turns out that Ben-Hadab, Adad, I keep saying Adab, Adad, and the 32 kings they have been still drinking all this time as this message has come to Ahab from the prophet. And so by now, they're legless. That's what, it, they're drunk. And to summarize what happens next, Ben-Hadad's vast army take a complete hammering. King's hammered, now his army's hammering. God's word proves to be true. God's promises are fulfilled, even though Ben-Hadad himself somehow manages to escape. We'll come back to that. 
But as a result of him escaping, the prophet of God comes back to Ahab and says, listen, Ahab, you need to strengthen your position. Now, yes, you've had this amazing victory, but you need to strengthen your position now because you see next spring, that enemy of yours is coming back. And so Ben-Hadad limps back to base, sobered up now, and he seeks some advice from his officials. And here's what they say. Look at verse 23, and Paul quoted this at the start of the service. Verse 23, this is what his officials say to him. Listen, Ben-Hadad, see the gods of Israel. They are gods of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. That's, that's why we took a hammering. But if we fight them on the plains, then we will be stronger than they are. You see, Ben-Hadad's officials think that Israel's gods, they think that Yahweh is only God of the hills, and therefore, all they need to do is change tack, and if they fight the Israelites on the level ground, then they're certain to win. To win. Talk about not knowing God. You see, here were a bunch of people who thought, right, we have got Israel's God sussed. We have got Israel's God boxed in, and worst of all, we have got Israel's God limited. And so Ben-Hadad agrees with their perspective, and so he waits until spring next year rolls round. And he launches another attack, and he decides, right, we're gonna go and fight the Israelites on the flatland, because I'm convinced we're gonna win, because Israel's God is only God of the mountaintop. He's not God of the valleys. So we're gonna be okay this time. And then we read this. You're still with me? Some are losing the will to live. Just hang in there. You need to have a sleep, have a sleep. Verse 28, here's what happens next. The man of God, so the prophet's back, the man of God came up and told, the king of Israel told Ahab, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans think that the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. So for the third time, the prophet comes to Ahab. It's all one-way traffic. Ahab's not going near the prophet, but the prophet, the word of God, just keeps coming to Ahab. It's all grace. It's the relentless grace of God that never gives up on us. Just keeps coming. So the third time, the prophet speaks into Ahab's life. For a second time, Ahab hears the phrase, this is what the Lord says because the word of God just keeps, keeps speaking into people's lives. For a second time, the promise is astonishing. I'm gonna deliver this vast army into your hands. And for a second time, the why, the reason, the purpose is restated and then you will know that I am. The Lord. Only this time, by the way, the you in this sentence is not singular. It's not just for Ahab to know that the Lord is God. It's plural. This is for all the people now to know that the Lord is God. Because you see, God's desire is to be known by all of us, by everyone. Always has been, always will be. So what happens? Well, just before we read about another huge against all the odds victory for the Israelites, let me just touch, and I'm really only gonna to touch on that phrase, 
because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys. Now, I don't want to take this too far, and there's always a danger with this. But I wonder, is this still a possibility on our part in terms of life's up and, up and downs? God on the mountaintop. God on the mountaintop experiences of life. God when things are going well. God when things are going okay is one thing. But you see God in the low points of life, in the dark places, in the bleak experiences. That's an altogether different issue. Is God still good? Is God still in control? Is God still who he says he is whenever we find ourselves walking through shadowy valleys and deep ravines? Is my God, God of the hills, but not God of the valleys? And you know, there are people in our church family who need to know and who do know and who are testifying to the fact that God is the God of the dark places and the valleys and the low points of life, not just the mountaintop experiences. Now, I know that is not what the Arameans were suggesting in 1 Kings 20. Theirs was a literal geographical query. But you see, for us, acknowledging God on every terrain, in every circumstance, in the ups and downs of life. That is maybe the challenge for some of us this morning to face in light of that verse. Have I boxed God? Have I limited God? Well, back to the story. The Israelites do enjoy another dramatic win. Once more, God's promise is fulfilled but once again, Ben-Hadad escapes. He survives. And whenever Ahab finds out that Ben-Hadad is alive, he's delighted. And so he sends for him, and he invites him, and this is, this is all bizarre now. We're getting really bizarre. He invites him to go for a spin with him in his chariot. Right? Now, remember, this is a guy who has promised to reduce Ahab and everything he has and owns to dust. And now he invites him to go for a ride with him. Well, after a conversation in the chariot, Ben-Hadad turns around to Ahab and he says, do you know all the cities that my dad stole from your dad? It's brilliant, isn't it? It's like kids. My dad's better than your dad. Do you know all those cities that my dad stole from your dad, I'm going to give them back to you, Ahab. Well, Ahab is now completely ecstatic. And so what does he do? He lets Ben-Hadad go free. Which in some ways seems like a really nice ending to the story. Like, if the chapter ended there, it would be brilliant. But it doesn't. There's a final twist in the tale. We're nearly done. Last page of my notes, anyway. This is verse 35 now. I said there was 43 verses, so hang on. This is verse 33, because what is about the play... 35. What is about the play out now is one of those scenarios in Scripture where weird things happen because someone needs, a sober, needs to learn a sobering lesson. So here's what, here's what happens. And Like, look at this. Please look at this, because so some of you are going to think I'm making this up. Right? <laughs> So here's what happens. We discover a prophet tells another prophet of God to strike him, right? So a prophet tells another prophet, will you please hit me? Because the word of the Lord has said you should, right? That's all in here. But the other prophet goes, no, 
I won't. And so the first prophet tells him, well, do you know something? See, because you didn't obey the word of the Lord, a lion is going to kill you the moment you walk out this door. Which is exactly what happens. So the first prophet goes and finds another prophet and says to him, hit me a smack. This prophet obliges, hits him, and wounds the first prophet. So the wounded prophet, the first one, then goes and stands by the roadside, it says, waiting for King Ahab to pass by. But he decides to disguise himself by putting a bandage over his wound, you presume, but also over his eyes. Some of you <laughs> have lost some. So the king comes walking down the road and the prophet calls out to him and says to him, I had been given a prisoner and I had been warned that if he went missing, I would have to pay for it with my own life or I would be charged a huge amount of cash. And then the prophet says to the king, and do you know what? The prisoner has gone missing. And so King Ahab turns round to the disguised prophet, verse 40, and says this. This is your sentence. You have pronounced it yourself. In other words, you have messed up. You have to pay up. Well, at this point, the prophet starts to unwind the bandages. He starts to take off his disguise. And he goes, ta-da. I am the prophet. And King Ahab recognizes him. And then this is what the prophet says to him. This is what the Lord says. Here's that phrase again. This is what the Lord says. You have set a man free that I determined should die. Who is it that Ahab set free? Benadad. You have set a man free that I determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. You see, Ahab, he was not meant to set Benadad free. Benadad was an enemy under God's judgment for his wickedness, and Ahab was meant to carry out God's judgment. But instead, what did Ahab do? He let Benadad off the hook. He blatantly disobeyed the word of the Lord. There's the commentary running there. He blatantly disobeyed the word of the Lord, and as a result of blatantly disobeying the word of the Lord, Ahab is going to discover some terrible consequences for him and his people, as we'll discover in subsequent weeks. You see, Ahab had been shown amazing grace time and time again. The word of God kept coming to him. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. So many chances for you, Ahab, to know God, despite your past, despite your behavior, despite the fact you don't deserve it despite the fact you've done nothing to warrant this. So many opportunities. Do you remember those three years of drought? Do you remember the incident on Mount Carmel when fire came down? Do you remember all those prophets that kept unleashing my word into your life, but you've never listened, you've never paid attention, you've opted to go your own way, you've ignored grace. You've missed the prospect of knowing God, and now it's too late. Your destiny has been determined, your fate has been sealed. And so what we discover here is that Ahab is tracked down by the inescapable word of God. And every single 
one of us will be. Tracked down by the inescapable word of God. What have you done with the word of God that keeps speaking in order that you would know God? What have you done? And how does does Ahab react? Very last verse. Sullen and angry, the king went to his palace. Ahab heads home in a huff. No remorse, no repentance, no submission, no change. And here's my final question. What about us? What about those around us? Because God's word is still speaking. I passionately believe that. We as a church passionately believe that God's word is still speaking. God's word is still being unleashed. God's word is still inescapable. Why? Because grace still abounds. But are we listening? And as a result, are we getting to know God better? Are we not only listening, but are we obeying the word of God? Because it would seem that will determine our destiny. May God's word continue to be unleashed in our lives.